0: passions, anecdotes. Your antidote are the mindset that keeps you settling for less. Pursuing and realizing our passions takes some hard work and some sacrifice. The things that are really important in life, the things that are really going to bring satisfaction, actualization, and all the like are things that are going to take a little bit more effort. It's going to take even some sacrifice. Some people and some pursuits naturally lend ourselves to understanding that sacrifice. And one community that i found that really understands the idea of sacrificing for something is the athletic community. I think I mentioned on previous episodes that this year I trained for and completed Ride the Rockies, which here in Colorado is a six day, 400 plus bike ride up and down the mountains in different places. And it's one of those experiences that you work hard for and you get a certain feeling of kind of that reward for that hard work. My guest today, Joe Shattuck, understands that particular aspect of working hard and training for a passion as she is a former racquetball champion and has recently now started a business called Panther Tech, which helps people with technique as well as some other things about their athletic pursuits. Joe, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Stephen. This is great.
0: First of all, I'm going to start by talking about your racquetball days because not everyone, not every listener, is an athlete or has an athletic pursuit, but athletic pursuits do have that whole air of you're following a passion and you're working hard for it. What brought you to racquetball, and what was the process of training to become a racquetball champion like?
1: Right. Well, uh, I don't know how far back you want me to go, but I had a lot of energy as a kid. In the ninth grade, my mom, you know, kind of saw the writing on the wall. I was getting in some trouble and <laughs> staying out past curfew and stuff, and she signed me up for a hundred different things, Girl Scouts and basket weaving and whatever else. <laughs> there was a ball league at the local club. So I went, and I played and I lost every game 21 to one or 21 to zero. And that was way back in the day. Then mm-hmm. a few years later, I went on to undergraduate at Louisiana Tech and they had 13 beautiful glass backcourts. In those days, being a teenager, you could drink and study or play rag And I did the first and the third. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... <laughs> And then I decided I wanted to be good. I remember the exact moment I decided I was hitting a ball and it went exactly where I want it. And I went out to the hallway and asked the fellows, I'm like, I think this could be something like, I think I might want to get into this and in our a ball contests. And they kind of laughed at me because they're not called contests, they're called tournaments. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So I went to my first tournament with my $14 Walmart racket in mm-hmm. my glove. And I won like a ladies B tournament in the middle of Louisiana just by myself and all that. And I was probably still smoking cigarettes at the time and doing all the things that teenagers do. So I did not take the normal path to elite athleticism like some of my other colleagues.
0: And you tried, you said hundreds of different things. Do you feel like that's a common story as far as people finding that thing that they're truly passionate about that You tried a bunch of things and maybe some things didn't work out at all and maybe some things you're like okay this is kind of cool but then you eventually find that one thing and feel like you know you were meant to do it
1: right that's an interesting question i think as far as like personal development i'm going to say everyone's different in my case it was my mom really saying we got to find something for you to do so you don't end up in trouble and so i was a teenager so not really driving yet and all that it's really important for people in general to pursue a lot of different things. And the reason is is that you can't get there from here. And if you stay still, you're not doing anything. Mm. So what I mean is going out and taking a tennis lesson or learning Spanish, whatever. Right? It's just information. You're not marrying somebody. You're not committed. I tend to filter my thoughts through a filter of is this reversible or not? <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> Almost everything in life, all right, is reversible. And aside from wrecking relationship and that kind yeah. of thing. So,
0: Burning bridges for sure.
1: Yeah, so if it's reversible and you can learn something, just say yes.
0: Mhm. And so obviously this applies not just to teenagers, but if someone's listening that's say already in their 20s, 30s, started a career and just doesn't necessarily like it, you're saying it should be the next step. And I think of the idea, and one of my previous podcast guests described it as being in a situation where you say I don't know what I want to do, but I just can't keep doing this. If someone's in that position, the next step you would recommend is just try something or try a bunch of yes. things.
1: Yes. I'm so glad you said that. And there's a lot of different lessons that kind of tell that story. One is one of the times I quit college, oddly enough, I'm a PhD now, but it took me a long time to get there. And mom and I were having a moment and so I was like, mom, I don't think I like what I'm doing anymore. And she's like, well, What do you want to do? I said, I don't know. She goes, well, what do you like to do? And I said, well, I like to play racquetball. And she said, well, why don't you just make a living doing that? And it was those, you know, five or six words. I was like, oh, and love my mom, love her to death. I think I say thank you to her a lot because she's that kind of woman, right? She would just say, well, don't do anything you don't want to do for longer than two weeks. Right.
0: Oh, wow. I wish I funny. someone telling yeah. me that, but yeah. <laughs> I,
1: know. I know. That's obviously a metaphor for life's too short, right? So you're right. If you explore a lot of things, if it's reversible, it's just information. You can't get there from here. You can get there from somewhere else.
0: And so once you decided that racquetball was your future, or what you really wanted to do, what process did you undergo to make it the thing, make yourself
1: yeah. successful at it? Again, I don't think I took the typical road. A lot of the racquetball start younger. They start at six and seven. They have coaches. They go to world junior worlds, And they started playing as early as six, seven, eight, nine, mm-hmm. all the way up to collegiate and all that. But I started late. So I would not recommend the way that I did it to people, which is just throw myself in. And, you know, when you teach a boxer, you don't want them to get their butts kicked too early, too often. You want to kind of gradiate your success. So it's a theory of performances that, success, build on success. The first two years I played the Pro Tour, I lost every game. Like, I don't even think I won a game the first two years. And it was just money. Oh, wow. out. I was 1991. I think I played Karen McKinney, who was number one in the time because another girl got injured. And, you know, spent every nickel I had to go to Atlanta and again, lost one and two and two or some ridiculous score like that. Mm-hmm. For good or bad, that just made me want it more, even though I probably had no business trying to do it.
0: So you said you had a couple years on the tour and you lost every game. What I'm wondering is what kept you going and what it took for you to get to the place where you were more successful in that endeavor, whether it's like what sacrifices, what changes of attitude. This goes
1: real deep. Actually, I came from a position of being an underdog Mm -hmm. and not a therapy session or anything, but I really identified much with the fight and the struggle and the underdog of it. And I think without that ingredient in me, I don't think I would have continued. And what I mean by that is when it's that old, God, I'm revealing my age, but Bon Jovi, like you live for the fight when that's all that you got, right? Yep. And a side note, when I give speeches and give performance speeches as a athlete, I always say this, that I think that held me back in some ways because I identified with an underdog and not ever being above that.
2: So Mm -hmm.
1: some sort of self-sabotage subconscious allowed me to get to number six in the world, but not to number five. Oddly, number five was my goal. I I never got there, right? I got to number six for a quarter of a season or whatever. But the idea is that I should have been more flexible enough to change my identity of I don't always have to be the underdog fighting. It would be nice to be on top and then I can defend my successes. So that's about what's inside me. I think the other thing is I loved it. I just In the court, you can control yourself and your ball and your breathing and your emotions and all that. And it's your way to manage your environment. Everything else in the world is beyond your control, right? And the other thing that was so exciting is that it's 10-10 and you're serving to make the U.S. team represent the Pan Am Games or whatever, and you have the ball and nobody knows what's going to happen. Not you, not the ref. It's just so exciting to know that it's just competing, competing Mm -hmm. against yourself, competing against another person. And I love that and the underdog part, even though it kind of was to a fault.
0: Well, you talk with the underdog part about being flexible with your identity in a way. And so if a listener's out there struggling, say they just launched something and they're not really getting success for they're getting that standard rejection, that standard delayed gratification standard, even starting out with a failure and having to go back to the drawing board. What do you think a lot of people need to do with their Flexible identity to be able to withstand something like that, withstand that rejection, withstand that initial failure, and still want to keep going.
1: That is fascinating. And that, again, is the part that I think you can't get there from here, except if you're fortunate enough to have mentors around you. If you've always relied on something, you're much more comfortable keeping that something and not giving it up, right? Mm-hmm. And a little bit of success can hold you back. A little bit of success might make you hold on to something that's not quite working for you.
2: Right.
1: It's working a little bit, but it doesn't get you past. So, the not holding on to your identity, I'll tell you a little story about how I retired. Mm -hmm. I think I might have mentioned this before, but we were playing a season. It was in Arlington, December 18th, 2010. I was feeling not myself for a few months, I think, because the season starts in September. I was like, oh, maybe I have some weird disease or some cancer or something. I don't know what it was. I just didn't feel right. And then I bolted out of bed the morning of the 16th. And I realized I would rather be somewhere else. I talked to my friend, Anthony, my training partner. and I said, Anthony, I don't know who I am. So you're Joe the pro. So I went and I played that game and my heart was in it. And Talked to my other friend. I don't know if you know anything about racquetball, but you take timeouts. And mm-hmm. it was close to the end of the match. And my friend came to the door and her name is Angela. Uh, number, Chile's number one player for a long time. She said, Joe, I know that you're struggling here, but if you go out, wouldn't you rather just go out on, you know, just fighting tooth and nail and just as hard as you can and all that. And I remember saying to her, yeah, I don't really care. Mm. <laughs> that was the switch that went off. Now I say all that to say that the next six months, I don't know who I was. I cried all the time. I couldn't watch any competing on TV, not even poker, not even oh, wow. family feud. Oh yeah. it was. Not bad. even
0: that like poker stuff where they have the percent odds of winning at the bottom of the screen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like ESPN (laughs) poker or lawnmower. I couldn't watch any competing because it just, it was just wrong. I wasn't good to stop and I wasn't good to keep going. And so I was kind of stuck in this place. And that identity eventually took a few years to get out of that and into myself, but now I'm not Joe the pro anymore that I was Joe the scientist. And then I went and got my PhD and now I'm evolving into Joe, the athlete neuroscientist entrepreneur. So yeah, adapt or die. That's the deal, adapt or die.
0: And so let's talk a little bit about that adaption. So you're the entrepreneur now and your company Panther Tech helps people with their form across multiple sports. What made you decide that this was going to be your path at this point in your life?
1: Well, long story again, going comes back to racquetball roots is that Competing, I didn't come up through the juniors, didn't have the mature strokes that some of my competitors did. And there was also no money in pro racquetball. So you had to do other things. You had to sell lessons and coach and run a program. In fact, side story, I actually remember 2008, the housing crisis. Yep. So my interest rate on a tiny little house I scraped together to afford went to 11%. And I couldn't afford to live there and play the tour at the same time. (laughs) So I bought a little camper and I don't know if you know anything about Denver, but I lived on the edge of Soda Lakes there with C470 in Hamden. You can see red rocks from the camper site. And I just paid this lady $100 a month to park my camper without electricity, had a little generator there. And at night, it was so cold sometimes, I would take a cast iron pot and heat it up and wrap it in a towel and then hug it. Oh, wow. <laughs> right before I, went, I know. It still, I mean, looking back, I'm like, that was a crazy person. <laughs> uh, so I did that for about two years. And then in the coldest days, I would go to my friend. Dave Ginnert's house and he would just leave it open knowing it was cold and I'd go crash on his floor. But anyway, point of that Mm. is I had to become a good teacher to make money, to be able to feed my racquetball habit. And so I spent a lot of time one-on-one in a court with another human being trying to get them to move in a certain way. And you find yourself using metaphors, like pretend that you are a black or pretend that your racket's a rope or be heavy on this leg. And all these words and metaphors to try to get someone to experience the sensation of movement and then replicate it and repeat it, and so that's kind of where the seed lies. And then I was pro at Denver Athletic Club for seven years, and people would come and train with me. When they'd fly in, we'd do two a days for six days and train, and then they would go home and they'd come back a few months later, and it was like nothing happened. Like they forgot forgot all their muscle memory, which is as a neuroscientist, that's technically a misnomer, but that's just the way that.
0: that oh, the people- idea of muscle memory.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's no muscles all have memory. Your motor cortex, your brain has memory, but still. Mm -hmm. So I wish there was a way I could capture my instruction and like freeze and capture it and then have them take it with them. So that was kind of the beginning. Side note to that, my dissertation was exactly that. It was how does the brain change going through motor sequence from not knowing how to do anything at all to being relatively proficient at it in a short amount of time. So muscle memory, as I say, happens in minutes or months. We did about a week of absolute intense training to do a drawing task. But anyway, that's how it started. So I wished I could capture my instruction and have my athletes capture the sensation of movement and self-correct at home when I wasn't around.
0: And what I love about the story is how your experience, so first of all, you had to have an experience because of the nature of your sport. That was like a sacrifice that you had to make for racquetball. I mean, living in the camper and dealing with all that heating up, but also the component of to pursue your passion with racquetball, you not only lived in the camper for a little while, but you also were, as you said, there's no money in it. So you were teaching all these lessons. But I think a lot of people are going to approach something like that. And some people might say, oh my God, this sucks, right? They'll say, this just sucks. I can't believe I have to do that. Why do I have to do that? All these basketball players, all these golfers don't have to do that because their sports get all these promotion deals, but That experience, that hardship kind of you endured of having to do all this teaching informed what would become your business idea later on because you were watching people with their technique and saying, okay, I need you to learn this technique. What's a better way to do it? Well, you could do it through all this rigorous training, or I can build this device. What made you connect the dots into saying that this is an idea that applies not just to racquetball, but to any other sport, whether it be golf, basketball, or anything else that you're dealing with right now with Panther Tech?
1: That's an excellent question. I'm so glad you brought that up. I found myself teaching and wanting to direct my attention of correction to the shoulders, because a lot of people with their shoulders or the hips, it all begins in the hips, the kinetic chain from the feet to the shoulders and the arms. And I would correct a lot of different things. And so in my head, I was moving my instruction from the arm to the shoulder, to the hip, to the foot. And that kind of stuck with me in that if I was to build an imaginary something, I would need to be able to move it around the body, right? Or put it on a sports tour. But turns out, as you might know, everyone in the world moves. Everybody moves. Everybody learns from the time that you learn to crawl to the time that you learn to use a walker and everything in between. Motor learning is universal and ubiquitous. It wasn't too far of a leap to know that I didn't build it with the intent of having it be used for sport and therapy and military and space training and vocational and all that stuff. I just built it for this. But mm-hmm. a few years ago, people were saying, well, that's a good idea. Have you thought about using it for this? Well, yeah, but I don't know well, I thought about using it for this. Ugh. So now we have 17 people on our experts ambassadors team, and they've all tested various iterations of the device. Here it is here. It's a little cat thing in different sports and different applications and we actually had our first clinical trial starting in a neuro rehab center in Omaha. That's kind of exciting because when I left racquetball I threw myself into science as part of my coping mechanism for not being a racquetball player anymore. So I was a research assistant at the University of Colorado on Antichrist Medical Campus and I said I want to have a product in clinical research one day and so you go.
0: <laughs> and one important thing that that story points out is the idea of kind of being out there and having conversations with people, because I think one of the misconceptions about ideas is that this idea that someone's just kind of sitting on a bench and just pondering and then that <laughs> and light the pose. bulb yeah. just pops yeah. off. Yeah. That pose like with your, your fist in front of your face and that light bulb just pops off like, Oh my gosh, that's an idea. When a lot more benefit comes from talking with people. I know The idea for my podcast came about when I was talking with other attendees at a TED conference and they were saying, oh, these talks, I'm so inspired. I'm so inspired by the people I'm meeting, but then Monday, I'm going to go to work. And then Tuesday, I'm going to go to work. And Wednesday, I'm going to talk to my risk-averse friends and family. And before I know it, I'm not inspired anymore. And I'm back to being in a position of fear and feeling stuck. But it wouldn't have come about without that whole talking to other people.
1: Uh-huh. That is a great story. And it's so true. Science, especially academia, lends itself to silos, silos of knowledge, right? Some part of it is so specialized. For example, a person's doctor, it may be on what uh neuroelectrochemical processes on this molecule in this protein fiber, and their whole dissertation is about that. And that's just not a kitchen table topic, right? <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. So, and they'll know more about that molecule than anybody else in their field. Now, motor learning, fortunately, is broad. Everybody does it. Sports pretty broad, especially now with the explosion of well, women's sport and all that. But mm-hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's probably one of the things I've learned over the last two years is that I can't remember who said it too, but there's no new ideas. There's just new combinations of old ideas.
0: Hmm. Would you say that if someone is out there feeling stuck, feeling in that position, I don't want to do this anymore, my heart's not in it, I don't know where my passion really lies what would be a good way for that person to kind of get out there and engage with the world in a manner in which they're going to find out, right? Because not all conversations are equal. I was going to be hundred percent upfront with that. And some conversations are never going to really lead you to, okay, this led me to the idea that I really want to pursue. This led me to the business I want to start or the passion I want to realize. What would you say someone should do to get to the point where they're having those conversations and they're putting themselves out there in a way that might get them to that eventual aha moment, kind of like you're, oh, aha, this isn't just about racquetball. Every movement, sports, basketball could do it, tennis could do it, golf could do it, everything else.
1: Right. Excellent question. Part of human behavior being studied psychology is that you like to be around people that are like you. Because you already, you're immediately, you immediately feel welcome. You have something in common. You have some sort of commonality that you feel included. Right? All of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. And so, if you go to the library to study, you probably will meet people who like to go to the library to study. Yep. If you go to the skate park, you might meet people that like to go to the skate park. But the problem is. You can't think about, I'm going to go do this and have this experience because you're just going to bring yourself along with you. If you put yourself in some other experience that you have no idea what it is, you don't even plan of what I think it might be like. That's how I think you get some of the extrasensory inputs and different ways of perceiving concepts and ideas and things in the world. And it's the same group think. If you watch CNN, you're going to get a lot of ideas of people that watch CNN, right? So I equate it to the silly thing of Drive home a different way from work. That's the metaphor, right? You still know where you're going. You just get there a different way. The other opposite of that is just drive anywhere. I want to see what's up that road. Do I know that there's a library with people in it like me or skate park or what? No, you just go somewhere different. It's just information. You can get to the road and say, turns out this is a cooking class and I don't like that. I'll turn around and come back.
0: It makes sense in the context of what you were saying before about trying a hundred things before landing on a racquetball, right? And you just tried a whole bunch of things. And this is kind of like almost a meta version of it, where like maybe if someone doesn't even know what to try, right? Yes. So then they're having the conversation of, I don't even know what to try. I just need to meet people. But to meet people or to expose yourself to any different ideas, you just have to try to do anything different. You change up your morning routine. Wake up earlier, wake up later. I'm a proponent that there's no one formula success. It's not like those infomercials where it's like, wake up at 4.30 and you'll be successful beyond your wildest (laughs) dreams, right? Yeah. But maybe that'll work for someone. Maybe staying up until two will work for someone else or maybe finding different groups of people or finding out about a different place. Because even if you take a different route home, maybe you'll see a different storefront or you'll see a different image of something or encounter a different thing that inspires you
1: as a neuroscientist your thoughts are all about different associations that come to you as you navigate yourself in the world right listening to podcasts for example led me to be here Uh, not listening to the same radio station every time listen to some music that i absolutely hate or it's just (laughs) it's it's crazy right (laughs) And it keeps your mind open and I don't mean that in a you know in a very non-scientific way, do something different. In fact, I'll tell you this. In training, wreck of we all like to practice things we're good at because it feels good, because we're good at them. So it feels it's like this cycle, right? And I think going through life, the same thing is you do what feels good and it's the same thing and the same thing, the same thing. So in the training that I mentioned we would do, we'd spend twenty minutes out of every hour. Whatever your worst skill was that day, we would dive into that. And it doesn't mean it's bad, right? It wasn't like you were awful at it, but it was your least favorite or worst thing to do. And you just did that. You sat in that for a while. And so the same thing is, I was going to say, eat some food you don't like, but that's not really what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) But it
0: makes sense. And one of the things that's been on my mind as you were talking about this Uh is the idea that we all get into ruts, like every once in a while there's that uneasy feeling, that rut. And it comes from, as you said, you're doing what makes you feel good or you're doing what you're enjoying. You're doing what comes natural to you. And before you know it, you're only doing the same thing, the same thing, and you need some differentiation. What do you think is the key to, I'm not saying preventing it because it's probably tough to prevent it. It's going to naturally happen. But the key to identifying a rut at say, an early stage before it leads to some degree of short-term depression or anything like that?
1: I wish I had an answer for you. (laughs) I think self-awareness is huge. There's actually a theory about depression that said it has a function. Depression has a function. And when you physically and physiologically, you get depressed, you stop and you think, and it makes you reflect on whatever the thing is you're depressed about. And it's kind of cyclical, but you Mm -hmm. think about it this is going to sound really silly, but if you were happy all the time, you wouldn't be depressed. Well, of course, right? (laughs) So the symptom of depression makes you slow down and reflect. And that's maybe your, I don't know how you stop it before it gets there, right? But that urge to reflect is a good starting point to prevent a rut. And awareness, of course, is huge.
0: And so I always think of it kind of as and maybe depression is the wrong word. I don't want to sound insensitive to people that are like actually dealing with chemical depression. That's a lot harder to solve than just going out there and meeting new people or trying something new. But I always think about something along the lines of being in a funk or something like that. And I think what you just opened my eyes to is the idea of not really thinking of that as a failure, as just like your psychological mechanism to understand I need to reflect on this as opposed to just keeping myself busy and just, okay, I'm enjoying this, I'm lit, but it's not leading me anywhere. Eventually something needs to come in and say, okay, as great as this experience was, it's time to vary it up and it's time for something new.
1: I'm smiling because what you just said on a meta scale, that would be my career racquetball story on a meta scale is that going and going and going and going and going and loved every minute, wouldn't trade it. And then keep in mind, I stopped in the middle of the season. I was top 10 in the world at the time. And then I couldn't even watch competing for two years after, like I said. Um, and I remember a few weeks after, you know, then watch the cartoons. There's like the big red circuit breaker switch that people pulled that, you know, the cartoon character pulls it down, all the lights go out. It was like one of those went off inside me. And I realized I would never train for all the way that I did before. And the reason I'm saying that is, it just occurred to me that what you described about being stuck, being stuck, being stuck, being stuck, and then finally sort of quitting in the most ungraceful way. (laughs) That's kind of what I did.
0: That reminds me of the stereotype of like the really old cartoons, the ones from before I was born, where someone's like running in the air and they're just running fine in the air until some (laughs) minute they realize like, oh my God. I'm not on the ground anymore. And they instantly just fall down
2: the entire canyon
0: or something Uh like that.
1: Yeah. That's really clever.
0: You talked about the training you did for racquetball. How intense was that training? How much intensity did you have to bring to kind of, as you said before, alluded to playing catch up because a lot of people started when they were six or seven and you didn't get into it until a little bit later.
1: A couple of stories come to mind. One is it's a sport you can play for a long time. So I started at 17. I played for another 23 years or so, Mm -hmm. and it's a young sport. So it's still evolving. And actually technically the sport now is, Oh, it's so much different than it was when I first started. And when I first started, I was one of the few people that dove on the court dove and now everybody dives, everybody dives. The game's harder, the balls faster, the rackets are lighter. One of the training things I remember is being 26, 27, thinking that was a little my friend Sarah would and I would train, and we'd be doing sprints. And whatever your weakness was in your head, the other person would whisper that or yell that at you as you were doing your training. For example, I wow. mean, looking back, you couldn't do it with somebody else. But I was like, yeah. "You old? Are you sure you want to do this? You should just quit. You're 26 now, and just trying to do whatever workout you're doing." And I said, "Yeah, you're just old. You should quit." Or whatever your weakness is you don't have that serve. You'll never have that. serve. And this is going to be very anti-psychology to a lot of the performance people out there that said, you never want to accentuate the positive. And part of that is pre-planning. So in a match, and I never felt old, I still don't, but it must've been a worry of mine sometime, but in a match, if those doubts start to poke their head in, you've already beat them a thousand times because you did it in practice when you were doing whisperings or lifting weights. You see what I'm saying?
0: It's almost reminds me of the way vaccination works, where you expose yourself to little amounts yeah. of something, and then your uh-huh. immune system builds up. You're building up your psychological immune system to your own systems of self-doubt.
1: Don't go say, Joe said, you should always announce all your negative feel. Like, no, that's not it. Sarah's a real close friend of mine. We agreed this is what we would do for this training session. And hers was not experienced enough because she started even later than I did. And so like, you'll never catch up to these people, right?
0: One thing I'm wondering is this whole building up your psychological immune system to your own negativity. Is this something you're bringing to Panther Tech right now?
1: Excellent question. And yes, it absolutely is. I think I might have a gift too, and the gift of attention span. (laughs) And that if I like doing something, I don't hear the noise. I just, this is work. I want to do it. I like how I spend my time. I think that The most valuable currency a person has is the hours in the day. And I might have more years than you, or you might have more years than me, but we all only get 12 hours a day. And how you spend that time is, it's irreplaceable, right? Mm -hmm. Which kind of lends what you're talking about to being in a rut. So fortunately, for whatever reason, I've been able to turn what I love to do into making a living living of sorts, even if it's cleaning carpets at night, living in my camper so I can play tournaments during the week or whatever. So like a long way around, of saying a short attention span, almost being short-sighted. I don't see any of that. I only see what I'm Yeah. But still having that long-term vision, which I don't know how that happens. But.
0: Well, I mean, some of it's about breaking things up. So you have a long-term vision, you know where you want to go. But then the question is, what do I need to do this week right, to make yes. that happen? Or what do I need to be thinking about today or this month? Whatever you want to break it up, you break it up into small segments so that you can have a manageable chunk as opposed to just nebulous sea of work
1: i think a lot of things are happenstance right place right time Mm -hmm. right person and that also kind of lends to just doing something leaving where you are and getting somewhere else because you can't get there from here anywhere else is better than here business wise we have three or four different verticals where after sport physical therapy military licensing even space training because we're inputting an auxiliary proprioceptive input into your sensory motor space and then learning from it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is if it was just a one trick pony kind of product, then maybe I would have a little more doubts, but so far we've, we've been successful in a lot of, not a lot of different areas.
0: That's awesome. And here's a somewhat loaded question. You alluded to our most valuable currency being our time. Would you say that there's anything that represents an extremely poor use of that currency of our time?
1: Like me personally or in the world?
0: In the world in general. Like, What do you think people do that is just like a really bad use of time? Or if that's too broad, you can say for you personally too, but yeah.
1: (laughs) This is going to sound silly, but I'm not a very good typist. And so if I'm typing an email, I have... 20 minutes of conversation, 20 minutes of content in my head, it's so inefficient to type it. And I uh, know that's probably not what you are after.
0: That makes perfect sense, though, because it's the idea of doing the things that you're just just not good at as opposed to passing them off to someone else.
1: Yeah, exactly. What I'm going to say is going to sound sexist, but in the old days, when the woman only was the secretary and the man was the CEO, and said, you know, Miss Penny, I need you to take a dictation, right? they don't do that anymore. And that's good news, but the technology exists out there. So you can talk in your microphone and say this, 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 and this. I bet at least three or four times a week, I talk into my phone just to record audio about what I'm thinking and what I'm saying on the drive home, or I listen to it later and a few more associations that come in. And then by the time I know it, I have a concept and an action of something to do.
0: It makes sense. The idea of being more efficient with your time and finding ways that work around some of the places that when you're experiencing frustrations with a task, once again be aware. And when you're aware of those frustrations, be like, okay, I need to figure out another way to do this. I need to figure out something more efficient, more effective, whether it be, okay, this is a good place to hire someone to do this or this is a good place to use the technology you have. Like even if you decide like, oh, I'm really bad at searching for songs on Spotify. So I'm just going to yell, Hey Alexa, play this song (laughs) Yeah. Even that. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. So one last question I had was we talk about how your athletic pursuits gave you the ideas in your head or the understanding of what passion and what sacrifice it takes to start up a business, to see it through its fruition, to, to make everything happen, to coordinate everything, to market, get through some of these other setbacks that we all experience for anyone that's say younger, what other experiences would give people that kind of understanding of what it's like to really pursue something you really, okay, I had to sacrifice day in, day out. So I have to be, I lived in a camper van, but some amount of, even if the sacrifice is just as simple as my friends were all partying last night and I had to stay home and work on an investor pitch, Right.
1: Right. Excellent questions about a year into this startup and this doesn't have anything to do with racquetball, but every day it feels like you make the Olympic team and then you get fourth in the Olympic in the same day. It's just (laughs) incredible. No, it's crazy. It's an incredible roller coaster. And I heard that story when I started, I, oh man, it's going to be an adrenaline rush and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, I guess so. And then you, you ever been in the Grand Canyon, by the way?
0: So it's on my list. I don't want to say bucket list, but I unfortunately have never made it to that particular. I've been to Yellowstone, Grand Time, a bunch of other stuff. So
1: okay. So that makes sense. So okay. So people have told you, Oh my gosh, it's amazing. You'll and you're like, Oh yeah, I'm sure it's incredible. And then you see it, and your brain just can't even process
2: mm-hmm. what you're
1: seeing because it's so big, so overwhelming, so amazing, so whatever. How can I describe what it's like, the ups and downs here? Again, the Olympic thing, but also there's no failing and there's learning and everybody has different words to say that, but there really is no failing. There's only learning. If your goal is the process, you'll never lose. And I mean, lose in the broad way, not W's and L's, right? If your process is to wake up, be open-minded, work hard, seek new adventures, try to learn something every day, listen more than you talk. One thing I was going to add to is if you, have a Twitter, how many people are following you on your Twitter? And how many people do you follow? I think that might say a lot. I never hesitate to follow someone that he's just a nugget of something, right?
2: Hmm.
0: That's an interesting take on it, because I think a lot of people, especially people who are trying to be influencers, the mark of success is that you have more followers than people that you're following. Yeah. But if you're following more people than people that follow you, it means you're in a digital sense, listening more than you're speaking.
1: That's how I would say it. And actually, I was thinking about leadership the other day. I'm not a leader of people. I know that. I played an individual sport. I coached individuals at a time. I'm not a leader of people. I think I'm a leader of my own thought. and I'm free to flow that way, to come up with things and ideas and that kind of thing. But you wonder, two people can be walking alone, separate fields. And one is a leader because a thousand people followed them. And one isn't. I don't know that that's even the right comparison. What I mean is, you can be a leader and not have people follow you. You're just doing your own thing, right? And then you can be a leader that says, "Come on, guys, everybody follow me. We're going to blah 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 blah." Does that make sense?
0: One of the things I'm thinking about is also being able to see a little bit beyond, right? Because someone that wants to get recognized as a leader or feel validated as a leader will think of, okay, how many people traditional corporate world, how many people do I have under you? Or in some other sense, how many followers do you have? How many people liked your photo, stuff like that. But oftentimes, the leadership and the impact that you have on people tends to take on a little bit more subtle of a form. And a great example would be this podcast. If as a guest on this podcast, you inspired someone, you may never hear from this person. You may never hear from the person that's listening right now, that heard what you had to say. And it helped them tweak their business in a way to make it gain some traction.
1: Excellent point. That's much better way of saying it. To me, is you don't have to know people are following you. You're just being true to yourself and being a leader of your own life. And maybe by example, other people will do that too.
0: Yeah. That's and it tends to be point. way more effective to lead by example than to lead by some form of coercion. I'll just leave that as a really broad category. But Yeah. Of activities, so yeah, that makes sense. Excellent. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes and telling us the story about pushing through, training hard, loving racquetball so much, you were willing to live in a camper van and do all sorts of crazy. It wasn't even a van—it was a nineteen
1: sixty-eight Holiday Rambler. Okay,
0: it was a, oh, okay. <laughs> it was yeah. a camper. Yeah. <laughs> And thank you to all the listeners out there for tuning in to Actions Antidotes. Just wanna encourage you to tune in again for some more episodes with more interesting people that have a story to tell and some great tidbits that'll hopefully help you get to the next level wherever you are on your journey.
1: Wherever you wanna be. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. It's been wonderful. I really enjoyed this.
0: Thank you. And uh, have a great rest of your day.
1: You too. Bye.